Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 44 and comes with a smattering of snow, ice and a little about what's known as the Dragon Mountains, the Drakensberg. They're also called the Barrier of Spears because the lava flow, which created the escarpment 160 million years before, has weathered away, revealing sharp spear-like peaks, some ascending over 10,000 feet. These are real mountains, and both British and Boer were rightly respectful of their power. Free State Boer Commander General Christian de Wett was based west of this barrier and decided to break his force of 5,000 men into four distinct groups. De Wett then headed off northwest on the 15th of July with the largest division and President Steyn in tow, along with the specialist mercenary unit under command of Captain Donny Taron. We'll deal with the others later in this podcast, but things are about to heat up as the snow settles on the Drakensberg and the thick fogs and low-lying clouds swirl about both upper and lower reaches. This cold, foggy weather seeped westwards towards the Caledon and the Brandwater Basin. It was through one of these deep mists on the 19th of July, two of the Lovat scouts, who were colonial troops being used by the British, managed to slip through Retief's neck. What they saw on the other side of the Brandwater Basin mountains was that the grass had been burnt for miles. This could have been linked to the Boers, who burned the grass in front of their trenches and defensive walls, making it more difficult for the British troops advancing to use vegetation as cover. Or it could just be nature, a lightning strike, or the local Basutu people setting fire to the grass to increase the fertilization on the harsh terrain before the summer rains. Hunter couldn't be sure what was behind this great burning. However, the two scouts he dispatched had more information that was more vital. They saw what they reported was a large Boer division at Nauport. We know that it wasn't the entire Boer army. In fact, General Christian de Wett had purposefully left what he thought was a relatively insignificant part of his army behind, so that the British wouldn't waste their time attacking what he called such a paltry force. The scouts also thought that the large force was bivouacked around the town of Friesburg, where they had heard President Steyn had set up his latest government. Of course, Steyn was part of the large commando now riding with the vet northwest of this region, heading towards the oft-fought-over town of Lindley and Helbron on the high plains. While some of the details of what his enemy was up to remained unknown, Hunter had a very good idea about the lie of the land, having discarded his almost useless maps drawn up by the war office. He knew now there were six mountain passes where horses and wagons could traverse, and these had to be cut off. So, the order of his army was prepared. Rundle and four battalions, totaling around 2,000 troops, along with 1,600 cavalry and 10 artillery pieces, were sent to block the two most westerly passes, Witnek and Commandoneck. Clement, who had now arrived, and Paget's brigades would attack Slabbit's Neck in the centre, while Hunter's own force, the dreaded Scots Highlanders, would simultaneously attack Retief's Neck. Bruce Hamilton would take a battalion and 500 mounted infantry and make for Nauport. This was Lieutenant General Hunter at his best, because he had summed up the landscape, the time to move, the weather, and realised that it was highly unlikely that the Boers would attempt to move further east. So Hunter left no one guarding the most easterly pass called Golden Gate. This is an extraordinary pass even today, and travelling through this area in winter by 4x4 off-road vehicle is almost impossible. Back in 1900, it was literally a pass too far. And of course, 
Hunter guessed right. So far, the Boers had outstripped the British in these matters, but with Hunter, things were changing. Meanwhile, General Christian de Wett was moving with his large commando and was trying to threaten the British main logistics supply route, the railway line. He was moving steadily northwest towards the town of Lindley and was travelling with President Steyn and his government, and that was a problem, as he writes in his book Three Years' War. The government travelled with us, and also, alas, 400 wagons and carts. Whatever I did, it seemed as if I could not get rid of the wagons. They slowed him down, you see, although so far he'd managed to evade the two British divisions sent in pursuit. Their scouts, however, were moving close to the Boer column, and De Wet knew it. On the following day, he means the 16th of July, I came into contact with some English troops who were marching in the direction of Witnik. They sent out a body of cavalry to ascertain what our plans might be. So now De Wet was being tracked, and this messed up his initial plan to attack the English forces by surprise. On the night of the 18th of July, his commander rested on a farm northwest of Lindley after he decided the town was too heavily defended to attack. While the Boer general was deciding on his next course of action, his own scouts brought him news that a force of 400 English troops were heading towards Lindley from the north and would pass quite close to him. So he made plans to attack this group and selected a group of commandos to join him, but at the last minute, one of the cavalry units sent out by Lieutenant General Hunter galloped into view. The 800-strong cavalry was here. General de Wet was being harried, and he didn't appreciate it, and had to escape further west as the British advanced. He couldn't stop, and was in danger of losing the initiative. The next day, on the 19th of July, as de Wet continued to circle around near Lindley, he ordered his men to continue heading west, while he stayed behind on the farm called Pardenkral to reconnoitre. The president and also members of the government stayed behind with him, and the group had breakfast at the farm. The terrible sibling conflict was about to explode once more, because waiting for him at the farm was his brother, General Piet de Wet. There was no love lost between these two, and when Christian de Wet swung off his horse, Brother Piet could not even bring himself to say hello, and asked bluntly if Christian de Wet saw any chance of being able to continue the struggle. This was an insulting question to someone like Christian, who lost his temper and shouted, Are you mad? then turned on his heel and entered the house, while Piet de Wet mounted his own horse saying nothing and galloped away. This was a symbolic moment. I explained in the previous podcast that these two brothers were very different. Piet loved law and order, a structured existence, while Christian de Wet was quite happy and able to think in the midst of chaos. Piet was rapidly losing interest in this war. However, you can sympathize with both. Their families had lost their farms, blown up by the British. They were now adrift on the felt, seeking assistance from other Boer families. They were refugees. After breakfast, Christian and the government officials climbed a nearby kopje or hill to take a good long look into the distance. There was no immediate danger, so they rode off after the commando, catching up a few hours later. That's when one of Christian's sons, who was riding with his father, told him that their uncle Piet had told the Boers that any attempt at crossing the railway line would lead to capture. Christian was seething that his own brother was undermining his leadership. Of course, there was a real danger here. The British had posted thousands of troops along the length of the railway line to keep watch, 
and it was going to be difficult to move across this vital route without being spotted. Bearing in mind that De Vette had 400 wagons to think about. At two in the afternoon, Boer's scouts arrived and said that Lieutenant General Hunter's cavalry and mounted infantry were approaching. The Boers managed to strike camp in 10 minutes, which even by modern standards is extraordinary. We know this because a British officer by the name of Captain Molyneux Seal spent an enforced holiday as De Vest's guest in the lager that July, travelling as a prisoner of war with the commander. Captain Seal was there partly because of a failure of military intelligence, which had reported that there were no Boers for miles, when in fact General de Vett's commander was literally just over a nearby hill. So Captain Seal found himself alone and armed one morning, running across the felt, being chased by 14 Boers, shooting at him from the saddle. Not the best way to meet Brother Boer, Seal said afterwards, and admitted that the Boers thought the whole episode was a huge joke. Seal didn't find it funny, but he then provided an interesting outsider's view of how the Boers operated on the felt. He was dragged before Christian de Vett. It was a Sunday, and the burghers were singing hymns, which he describes as being yelled out in a nasal drawl. He joined a handful of other British officers who were allowed to keep their warm greatcoats, because, of course, it was midwinter. Seal watched de Vett closely and was impressed. He rules his mob by the strength of his right arm and character, wrote Seal. About five foot nine, with broad chest and very upright seat on his grey horse, he was continually conspicuous. The lager appeared to have little in common with the way in which the British ran their columns. There were no tent lines, no dressing of soldiers by the left, or forming up in ranks. But there was also no noise, no shouted orders. And he suddenly realized that the ox wagons and other equipment were always laid out in exactly the same order and relative position. That meant when the command came to strike camp, it took minutes for the men to be on their feet and moving. Like the British, most of the wagon drivers were black South Africans. But unlike the British, the Boers worked with the black drivers to hitch up their 16 huge oxen and horses, whereas the British would merely sit back and watch the black brethren toil alone. In de Vett's camp, of course, everyone was a countryman, and everyone knew how to inspan oxen. They'd been trained since boyhood, after all. While Boer discipline was regarded as lax, with troops literally coming and going as they liked, the punishment for sleeping on sentry duty was not lax at all. Seal describes what happened to Boer soldiers who were caught asleep while guarding their countrymen. They would be stripped to their underwear and then tied over antils. Anyone who tried to escape the terrible, painful punishment or wriggled or moved would be shot. On the 20th of July, Christian de Vett sent scouting parties ahead to Hunningspreit Station and Karlachter after farmers nearby warned that British forces were based there. While President Steyn was alarmed at the news, de Vett was more taciturn and writes, For myself, I do not pay attention to these burghers. I rely on my own scouts, and I waited for their reports. As Clausewitz writes on war, when there's confusion, commanders often believe bad news ahead of any other. But in this case, de Vett was too clever to confuse a report with a proper assessment conducted by trained colleagues he could trust. And Captain Donny Taran was one of these men. 
Remember, Tehran commanded a group of 80 mercenaries from around the world, men who'd fought across the globe and were some of the best soldiers of the period. Captain Skierpers had also been sent to scout nearby, and both captains had discovered that the trail was, in fact, clear, while there were some British troops around Hunningsplatz Station. You can imagine De Vett smiling as he wrote, This information came as a great relief to the president and the members of the government. While he prepared, De Vett knew that it was crucial to cross the railway line unnoticed. He was being tracked by the cavalry and did not want to be trapped against the railway line. It would have been game over for his division if they were caught in the open countryside. When night fell on the 20th, De Vett ordered the wagons to proceed in four rows with a force of Boers on each side, headed up by a vanguard which he led and a rear guard to watch their backs. They were going to cross the railway line. He rode out ahead of this force with 15 men and cut the telegraph wire himself, a leader who led by example. As he snipped the cable, something happened which took him completely by surprise. A train could be heard in the darkness to the south, heading towards his large division crossing the railway line. He writes, I had no dynamite with me, but I could neither blow it up nor derail it. I could only place stones on the line, but these were swept away by the cow catcher. He had forbidden any shooting, believing an engagement would cause confusion in his own lines in the dead of night. However, there were actually two trains travelling close together, and Captain Dani Tehran captured the second after its locomotive broke down. British troops on board had surrendered after a short, sharp skirmish. As his men looted the train, they came upon a large amount of ammunition, but because his much-loathed wagons were too far away, he ordered the wounded British to be moved away and then set fire to the train. Taking the 98 prisoners, they rode off as the train burned, and he says, We had not gone far when we heard the small-arm ammunition explode, but I cannot say that the sound troubled me at all. He then thought of his brother Pete, who had warned everyone that this was a fool's errand, that all be captured or shot, and he gloated. That was a little premature, for as he sent wagons forward with corn and orders to head to Mackenzie's mills near Fredafort to have them ground, he was unaware that one of the cavalry units was actually close by. It was the 22nd of July, and his scouts suddenly reported the British were about to seize his all-important corn and the wagons. While he didn't much care for the wagons, he did care for the food. 400 Boers galloped across the felt directly towards the English cavalry and then an hour-long firefight took place with both sets of troops fighting each other and refusing to give an inch. That was until English reinforcements arrived with artillery and De Vett had to withdraw. He'd lost five men, killed 12 wounded. The English about double that number, but still the hit-and-run tactics he'd begun to employ were proving effective. The 1,500-strong commander under... Christian de Vett then moved silently into the Renostoport hills to rest. While he waited, our attention must switch back southeast to Bethlehem, close to the Basutaland border, where Lieutenant General Hunter had finally been joined by Clement and his reinforcements. He was faced by the famous ring of mountains of the Brandwater Basin, and further east, the Jockensburg. Remember, he had planned an assault on the range, but left the Golden Gate Pass open. The Boers foolishly failed to take their chance at that point. British agents based in Basutaland and Lobat scouts were feeding Hunter much more accurate information than he had previously received, and he had guessed right about the remaining Boers' next move. They didn't have their mighty leader Christian de Vett with them, and the coming days would lead to a Boer disaster. 
Hunter launched two concerted attacks a few hours after dawn on the 23rd of July on the two northern passes of the Brandwater Basin. On the one, the summit of Flabbert's Neck, a wagon road, passed close to an African village, or kraal as it's known, and among the huts the Boers had dug a well-disguised series of rifle pits. But the British Yeomanry Division discovered these were empty, while the Boers were gathered in the gloom nearby. As the first lines of these scouts approached, both the Boers and the British raced for these rifle pits, with the Yeomanry winning the race. After two hours of intense fighting, two more infantry companies of Royal Irish troops moved up to the village. Then came the order, Fix bayonets! And the Royal Irish stood up and charged. The Boers gave way. The Irish lost four dead, twelve wounded, but they had taken the high ground of Slubbert's neck. However, at the second neck, Retief's neck, fighting was far more violent. The night had been icy cold, with sleet and rain falling, while the morning left the mountains shrouded in fog. The Lovat scouts involved in the fight here said it reminded them of Scottish weather, while the Remington Tigers were also slowly moving upwards through the swirling fog. No sign of the Boers. Suddenly the Boers opened fire, catching the British lines in the open, albeit hidden from view in the bad visibility. After a day of exchanging fire and artillery rounds, the Black Watch and Seaforths had lost 86 men when the Boers suddenly melted away into the mist. Once across Retief's neck, Hunter's column joined hands with Clements and Paget's brigades, who had crossed Slubbert's neck. This force, along with Hamilton's Highland Brigade, moved east and finally blocked off all eastern escape routes, those of Nauport and Golden Gate. The trapdoor had been slammed shut. Thousands of Boers were now caught inside the British circle of steel. We'll leave these two forces now, huddled close to their fires, as the sleet, snow and rain falls. Next week, a surrender that angers the vet, and more action to the far northeast in the Transvaal, while General Buller will continue his attempts at clearing Natal of Boer forces. Until then, please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes if you can, and check out our website at abwarpodcast.com. Thanks for all the messages on Twitter. Remember, you can always send me a note there, and the handle is at Des Latham. Goodbye. Oh, bring me to